Welcome to the Education, Career, and Beyond podcast. We've combined life experience with young adult drive and ambition. Are you just starting to college plan? Did you finish your education and wonder, now what? Join us in this lively discussion about the topics you need to know to create the next stage of your life's dreams, careers, finances, education, and more. Brought to you by Voice for Heroes 501c3. Welcome back to another episode of the Education, Career, and Beyond podcast. Today, um, we got Ed as my co-host here, and we have author and retired New York Police Department, um, Vic Ferrari, who is going to share a little bit about <laughs> his journey and what um, he's learned over his time and across two different careers. How's that for such a great intro? Let me tell I you literally something. forgot you, every single thing. <laughs> you got stuck on Vic Ferrari, so let's right. open that show with that. So before I, yeah. we hit, before we hit the record button, we were asking Vic about his name. Vic, you said you had a funny story about that. I said witness protection. Uh, you said no, nah, not likely. So maybe you could tell him why it would never be a witness protection name and why how you came to the pen name Vic Ferrari. Sure. So when I got into writing. I didn't want to write under my own name. I wanted to have a name that kind of popped. And if you probably remember, Ed, um, there was a television show in the 1970s, early 80s called Taxi. Yeah. And on the show Taxi, Andy Kaufman's character was a guy by the name of Latka. He was a mild-mannered, meek uh, auto mechanic from the Caspian Sea. And occasionally on the show, he would take a blow to the head for whatever reason. Some would drop a wrench or Danny DeVito give him a smack. And he would take on this persona of Vic Ferrari, a guy who had one shirt, one button down, opened up too much and too much cologne. And he'd always be hitting on the ladies and suave Devonar, a guy you could probably only take about 15 minutes of. So I thought that was funny. I'm an auto crime detective. So I went with it, Vic Ferrari. As far as you're talking about the witness protection program, no, they would never give a person a name like that because when you go into witness protection, they want to dumb everything down. They don't want people asking you questions about your past so if you, or, or even really interacting with you. So if you had a name like Vic Ferrari, oh, you're Italian. Oh, Ferrari, that's an interesting name. Are you related to the manufacturer of the car? And it would just get into too much explaining. And depending on the person, they might not be able to lie as well as they should. So they would give you a name, like I said earlier, Michael Peterson or Bob Smith. Gotcha. Yeah, that, I can see how that would be problematic. <laughs> particularly if you were Italian, right? So what, you're from the old country and next right, you know, right. the witness protection program is being relocated. Um, all right. So Capri, I know you got a few questions for Vic. Why don't you go ahead and fire away? Um, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about yourself? You have two very different careers that you've um, just lived through. And I think that's really interesting. So do you want to tell us a bit about how um, you became an author and about your time in the police department. Sure. I'm born in Ray Bronx kid, born and raised lower middle-class family. Uh, since the age of five, I knew I wanted to become a New York city police detective. I tell the story wow. when I was a little boy going to the movies with my mother around the corner from the movie house was a police station. So when she would walk me to the movies on Saturdays, I would watch the cops out front. I would look inside the police cars. I'd look at the equipment. I'd watch the cops and I, every little boy is gravitated to that gun. So I was like, yeah, I want one of these. 
<laughs> and then by the age of 10, my friends and I used to sneak into the local post office and I would steal FBI wanted posters off the wall. And my friends and I would go around the neighborhood conducting manhunts. So I've got, I'm 10 years old. I got a wanted poster for Billy Ray, something or other, wanted for a bank robbery in Alabama. And I'm going into the local deli in the Bronx looking for this guy. So I knew what I wanted to do at an early age. By 20, I took the police exam by 21. I was I was in the police academy and I enjoyed a 20 year career. I worked in a lot of different units. I worked in plain clothes a lot. Like it's called anti-crime, but it's more like decoy. I also worked in the narcotics division, a DUI unit. And my last 10 years, I worked in the organized crime control bureau under the auto crime division. So anything with chop shops, stolen vehicles, exporting cars out of the country, changing vehicle identification numbers on stolen vehicles for resale, identity theft, and a lot of organized crime and mafia cases. When I retired from the NYPD, I moved to Florida, was bored, bored out of my mind, and I got into writing. And I've written a series of behind the scenes books about the New York City Police Department. That's incredible. Have you always had that like creative side or desire to like write or did that kind of come about just out of boredom? It came out. It, no, that's a good question. It came out of boredom and I never really knew I had a creative side. Okay. It's funny. I was very creative as a detective trying to figure out ways and setting up stings and stuff. But, you know, once you retire, you can't do that stuff anymore. So I had to figure out what to do with myself. I got involved with the, um, refinishing and painting furniture, and I was doing that for a while. But then, you know, locked in my garage in Florida painting furniture. It's fun. But after a while, that heat just gets to you. So I, had, I said, I got to do something with a little less lifting. So friends and family said, you know, you got all these stories. Why don't you just start writing them down and write some books? And I thought about it. And I was like, who the hell wants to read what I have to say? But I gave it a shot. I wrote one book, it started selling. I wrote another book, it started selling. So here we are. It just kind of turned into a little cottage industry for me. Wow. So then are all your stories like inspired by real cases that you've worked or are they just kind of a mix of things that you've seen? Both. Um, some are stories that happen to my friends and family. Um, others are things that happen to me. When I got into writing these books, the two things I didn't want to do was get anybody divorced or in trouble or embarrassed. And I'm not a sour grapes person. So I changed the names, the dates, the ranks, the locations. I might move a character that I knew or someone I worked with into another story because it'll fit better. But no, they're inspired by things that really happened to myself, coworkers, or family. Wow. So lots of action in them. Very interesting. And I see your head spinning. You got questions going on in there. I know it. Always, always got stuff on my mind. So, Vic, uh, in this house, we do a lot of police detective shows. I'm kind of curious, how much of that stuff do you actually laugh hysterically like, like that would never happen? Or versus how much of you like, hey, that actually sounds pretty interesting. I'm kind of, I get it. Or do you just stay away from the genre completely? See, I do tend to stay away from it completely. You know, it's funny. Like I go on Netflix like everybody else or Amazon Prime. And I often I look for the documentaries. I'm mm. fascinated by real events and real things that happened. I I can't really get into CSI or I used to watch Law and Order early on. And I liked it because Law and Order is one of those rare shows. I don't know about now, but 30 years ago when I was watching it. It's about the closest thing that you're going to get out of a television series that's real to police work. So every law and order starts with, off with there's a homicide or a crime, right? The detectives come. They're interviewing witnesses. 
They're gathering information. They're going back and forth with the district attorney's office. We want a search warrant. No, bring us more. We want to lock this guy up. No, bring us more. Then they lock the person up or they bring them in for questioning. And that leads to something else. And then at the end, you get the five or 10 minutes of the prosecutor's standpoint of how the strategies, how they're going to prosecute this case. It all comes full circle in an hour, which we all know is nonsense. But Law and Order is about the closest thing that you're going to see on on television. Yeah. So we just had this conversation the other night in my home, Vic, which is the idea that you can encapsulate that case and get it solved in an hour. That bugs me. I kind of either want a whole season walking through a case or three or four episodes, depending on what it looks like, which brings me to my next question. If they approach you and said, hey, Vic, we love your books. We'd like to do a television show or a movie about them. How would you feel about that? Would you jump on it? You're like, eh, that's not really what I signed up for. What does that sit in your to do? Oh, I would jump in with both feet. (laughs) No, I (laughs) I'm more afraid of somebody ripping me off. Um, no, I, I would listen. If someone came to me and said, listen, we want to option your book or we want to use your book or use you as a consultant and your stories for something. Yeah, no, I, I'd listen. Absolutely. Right so that brings me to the next part of that question, which is what what is the game plan? You write for fun. Is there like a, an end game for this? Or are you just like, yeah, I'm just doing it. And whatever becomes of it becomes of it. I got into writing because I was bored and it challenges me for now. It keeps me busy um, and, and I'm making money with it. And, and here's the thing that a lot of new authors or self-published authors don't realize. Like you could write the greatest story, the greatest book in the world, but if you don't promote it, it's not going to sell. It's just if people don't know about it, it's not going to sell. So a third of my time is spent on marketing. And I I quickly realized after a year or so that podcast was the way to go to get my message out there. And people like yourselves are so nice to listen to me and put me on your on your um, forums that every time I go on a podcast, I'm exposing my material to a whole new audience. So and thank you, because it's people like yourselves that help me sell books. The end game, I'm going to do it until it's no longer fun. And then I'll do something else. You know, it, you know, I might do this to the rest for the rest of my life if it, you know, if it challenges me and it continues to be lucrative. And, and if it doesn't, I'll figure out something else to do with my time. Gotcha. Hey, Capri, before I turn it back over to you, I got another yeah. question for you. Okay. Related you to go. what you said, uh, I was going either way, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, you said that you knew at five what you wanted to do. Talk to me a little bit about, um, Five to nineteen twenty is a big stretch. How did you, for a young person out there going, I got, I want to be a police officer. I have an idea of what I want to do. How did you develop that? Stay engaged with that. How did that? How did you get to that? Because that's a long time to be sitting there going, I can't wait to be a police officer. Um, how did you develop that curiosity and feed that? Well, first of all, my parents wanted to kill me. Because as a boy and from five to 19, right, or 20, when I took the exam, um, my, my only interest in life was police work and sports. And my father was a hardworking guy, worked six, seven days a week. He just didn't understand it. Like, and I had a wonderful relationship with my father, but he just couldn't fathom. He didn't grow up in a sports household. So he didn't understand. Like he used to say, he goes, you watch all these games, you know, all these statistics. He goes, these people aren't going to do anything for you. It's entertainment. He goes, you're too into this. They wanted me 
they had no problem with me going into law enforcement, but they definitely wanted me to hedge my bets. They wanted me to go to college. I didn't want to go to college. And then, you know, when I was getting out of high school, there was a, a two year gap where I wasn't eligible to become a police officer. And my parents were like, what are you going to do in this two years? And what if you take the exam and you fail or there's something wrong with you that comes up on a physical exam that, that, that you, they're not going to hire you or they stop hiring. You're going to be screwed. So my dad did everything he could to get me into the trades. He took, he dragged me out of the house to, uh, to Long Island city in Queens to sign up for the electrician's exam. And then I purposely tanked the test. And like, he's like, I know you failed that test on purpose, which I did, but you know, it was like, it, it was definitely a game of cat and mouse. And my parents had, and they were right. They said, as soon as I got, I mean, I always worked. I worked in high school, but when I got out of high school, they said, listen, you can live here, but you got to work. You have to have a job. And it was like, catch me if you can, because I would leave the house with one job and come back with another. And I had more bullshit jobs. I cleaned planes on the midnight at LaGuardia airport. I unloaded trucks at UPS. I delivered pizza. I went to a, an exterminating company and gave a bogus reference and was working for this exterminating company for about a month. And the guy liked me. So he couldn't figure out why I left the bigger exterminating company that I never worked for. So he calls the guy up, right? And the guy goes, I never heard of this kid. So I come into work one day and he goes, I just talked to, you know, Bob at Helping Exterminating. They've never heard of you. Who are you? And I says, oh, now you're going to fire me. He goes, you've been going out spraying poison and putting down rat poison. And he goes, you know, like, I can't have you just doing it. He goes, you know, where did you think you could do this? And I'm like, I just watched the other guys do it. So I just figured I could do it. You gave me a route and I just started doing it. So I had so many crazy different jobs. I, I worked on the second floor of like a, a boiler room selling newspaper ad space. And I was like the youngest person in there by decades. It was like that song Piano Man by Billy Joel was like, all these broken down losers, like fighting over sales. And I'm like, I'm in there like 20, you know, 20 year old kid. And they're all looking at me like, you know, it's like, you know, dye jobs and toupees and older women with, with denture cream. And I'm sitting there like calling people up trying to sell crap. And, you know, I was like, I got bored and I left there, but it's just, I always knew what I wanted to do. You know, it's just, it, I, I'm lucky that I'm like maybe that 1% of the population that knows what they want to do and, and is lucky enough to get the job they want or the career they want. So uh, related to that, Vic, if somebody was wanted to follow in the, those footsteps and go, I'm committed, I want to do it. Um, two questions. One, what would you recommend them to do to go if they want to go in the police force and secondarily what did you learn from all those little jobs that might have contributed to your success as a police officer you just stole one of my questions you're welcome all right so to become a police officer nowadays most police departments you need college right so obviously if you're going to be if you're going to go into law enforcement you got to get at least an associate's degree Take courses besides criminology. Look at spe- look, look at what you want to do. Think first what you want to do in law enforcement, because just going into law enforcement, you don't necessarily have to be a road cop for 20 years. Right. So pick something that might aid you if you're working for a larger police department where you can go into a specialized unit like there's so many cops that I knew that were pilots first. They went into the aviation unit. We had guys that worked for funeral homes. 
and, and that were undertakers went into the missing persons unit because they had to fingerprint dead people or they went into the crime scene unit because things like that didn't bother them. So pick something that's going to aid you in law enforcement. Just don't take creative writing or interpretive dance, get your credits and then go into law enforcement. Pick something that's going to aid you in law enforcement. And once you do get in the door from the day you're hired for the first two years, keep your mouth shut and your ears open. Nobody likes a spoiled kid or someone running their mouth or being a know-it-all. Watch. Watch what's going on. You're not going to know what's going on. So just watch and listen. You know what I mean? It's because in law enforcement, the quickest way to get a bad reputation is to run your mouth early and it's going to take years to get rid of. So that's one thing. And what was the other question you asked me? I apologize. No, it's okay. I did have this bad habit of stacking questions. No, it was fine. about the two years when you were working those miscellaneous jobs. What did you learn about yourself or what did you learn about those experiences that may have prepared you for your career in law enforcement, if anything? So with all those jobs, I interacted with a wide variety of people. Like I told you about that boiler room I was in for like 15 minutes. I, I learned different how to deal with different people with different situations. And I didn't realize it at the time, but then as you get older and you come across somebody with a personality type, like, ah, oh, I've seen this before. You know what I mean? As opposed to just having one job or, you know, nowadays, a lot of kids, they don't even have a job before they get their first job. And they really don't know how to talk to people. They don't really don't have people skills. So, I mean, for me also, I mean, doing all those crazy hours, I realized that that police work is not going to be a nine to five job with weekends off. Like I said, I was cleaning airplanes on the midnight working weekends, all sorts of crazy shit. So I learned to be adaptable. Got it. All right, Capri, I stole two of your questions. So I've given you time to try to think of a couple more. <laughs> okay. Well, it's all right. I always got a back of you because I, that always happens. Um, so kind of on the theme of like learning things in the in-between waiting time, what is like one of the biggest lessons that you've learned through like your transition of careers or like maybe post police department, just kind of reflecting back on all your experiences that you've had? As Could you rephrase the question? I apologize. <laughs> no, you're all good. Um, what are just some of like the biggest things that you've learned either like when you've transitioned like out of the police into creative writing or just like between the different jobs um, or just like in general from your various jobs that you worked because there's a lot of them it sounds like. Yeah, it's the same as the police department. I moved around a lot until I found exactly what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, what I would do is I'd work at a unit for a while and then once I got bored after a couple of years or that the unit was going to be dissolved. I was like, okay, I'm out of here. And then I would put in for something else. I always tried to have good evaluations. I always try to get along with my supervisors because the quickest way to get stuck in the mud in the NYPD is to piss someone off. And the department is so large with 40,000 members, they could hide you anywhere. So you didn't, you didn't want to get, you didn't want to fall into that trap. I, you know, as a detective working in organized crime, you, you're using so many different resources. It, it's just amazing. And sometimes you got to find your own resources. Like one time we had a pole camera across the street from a chop shop and we were watching cars go in and then they weren't coming out. So we had this camera that was recording license plates. And 
it just seemed to happen that a couple of times at like five, six o'clock in the afternoon, these cars were going, these stolen cars were going in. And by the way, the sunlight was hitting the back of the car. You couldn't read the license plate. So this is the mid nineties where we were taping things on VHS tapes. So we couldn't make out the plates. I brought it down to our tech guys at police plaza. They looked at it. They said, no, we can't do anything with it. And I'm not one to take no for an answer. So my partner's like, well, I guess we lost those three or four cars to get a warrant because we don't know the plates. So I said, no, you know what? I said, they're not the be all end all. There's got to be another way. So we're coming up the West Side Highway. I says, get off in the 50s, get off in 57th Street. So we got off 57th Street. On 57th Street is CBS Studios where they filmed 60 Minutes. So we just parked the car. I banged on the door. A security guard opened the door. I says, listen, I says, um, detective, I says, can can we talk to the guys from 60 Minutes? He goes, yeah, come on in. Let us in. It, it wasn't like Dan Rather was there, but it was I'm standing in the 60 Minutes booth where they, you know, working on things. Yeah. And I said, listen, I'm a detective in the auto crime division. I have this tape. Can you enhance it that we could get a couple of licenses? Oh, Yeah. And, you know, it's like, yeah, we're going to put this on digital. Now, I didn't know what digital was. Like, what the hell is digital, right? And they're taking the tape and putting it on digital. And we were able to get a couple of plates that way. So I guess, like, never take no for an answer. And just, you know, it, it, if you hit it, it, life's not a video game. When you hit a dead end, go left or right. You know, I think nowadays, the, the, the gaming generation, it's like when, when they come to a roadblock in life, it's like, thank you for playing Nintendo. You know, it's like, no, there could be something around the corner, make a left or a right, look around, see if you can figure it out. Besides um, resilience and resourcefulness, do you think there's any other like key traits that you need um, to succeed in the police department or maybe in life in general? You got to be adaptable. You know what I mean? And even though you're working in a place and it's great, the unit, they could close the unit up or you could get supervisors in there that don't really have the same vision as you. You can't just kind of roll up in a ball and pout. That happens a lot in law enforcement. And you'll see like a lot of bitter and miserable people, because if you're if you're a precinct cop, right, depending on the precinct, some of these precincts are very busy and you're going out answering 30 calls a night. You're getting 15 minutes to eat in your car. You're bouncing around. You're not getting the days off and it burns them out. And what winds up happening is they become miserable. And I remember like I'd be early on, like the first precinct I went to was this burnt out hellhole in the South Bronx. It was a dumping ground for guys that had screwed up in other places and rookie cops who didn't have family on the job to move them around the chessboard. And I'm in this, you know, hellhole and I'm saying to myself, oh, no, I'm not going to be, you know, as as a 21 year old, I'm seeing men in their 40s and 50s that are still on patrol. They never really got out of uniform and they're miserable. And I said to myself, oh, no, that's not going to be me. Like, I got to get the hell out of here before this happens to me. So, you know, and don't listen to the naysayers, you know, any job, there's going to be somebody saying, oh, don't do that. What are you doing that for? Don't that's them. Don't let that be your life. You know what I mean? Don't don't get stuck in that rut that you're listening to an idiot. And then before you know it, you're the idiot. Yeah, that's great. Nobody, that's a good piece of advice. Don't listen to the idiot or you're going to be there. Um, Capri, you have another question or you want me to? I do. So Vic, clearly you're a very driven um, person. You know what you wanted from a very young age. What advice do you have for young adults who maybe don't know what they want to do yet or they've kind of explored some areas, but they're still feeling lost as far as a career? Um, Do you have any advice for that? 
I think, you know, the world is different from when, when I grew up. I'm 57. When, when we were kids, there were no video games. And mm-hmm. there were three television stations, even in New York, three, three or four. So there really wasn't a lot entertainment value. So we used to go outside and play games and play sports and run around and, and figure things out. And I think that's, that's important to develop a young mind as opposed to just sitting there playing video games or watching Netflix. I mean, it's great to zone out when you're an adult, but a child should be challenged. Their minds, you know, they're developing. They should learn different skills. And you do do that just running around in the street with your friends. I'm not talking about gangbanging. I'm talking about playing hockey in front of the house or throwing a football, going to the schoolyard and throwing a football around. You learn things. Team sports, you know, it it builds, you learn different things in team sports. You you learn how to be a team. You learn different personality types who is opposed to going over your friend's house for a play date. And the two of you is sitting there playing video game. Yeah. I know that's what I do on my play dates. So, Vic, I was thinking about something you said uh, early on about how um, you got to, you know, you got to mind yourself when you're in the police department. You know, you make you irritate a captain or you get on the wrong side, so you can get buried. And I thought that was an interesting take, particularly obviously that comes from experience. We talk to young adults a lot about mentorship. When you're in the police department, you're trying to navigate your way through. Can you remember one or two? individuals in particular that kind of took you under their wing and really guided you and how important was that? Yeah. So when you're a new cop, and I think this goes anywhere, especially like a decent sized police department, it's when you, when you get out of training, right. And you, and you get thrown in with the other guys. I, 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 it sounds funny, but it's true. It's like going to jail for the first time. You don't know the lay of the land, right? Rookie cops. I, I, I can speak when I was a cop, the old timers want nothing to do with the rookies. They don't know who you are. They don't know if you're a big mouth or know it all. Cry, baby. No one's going to really talk to you. It's kind of like figure it out, kid. And that's what I was saying earlier. Keep your mouth shut, your ears open. And after a while, the guys or girls will start warming up to you and realize, okay, he's not so bad. He, he, I remember that he reminds me of me or she reminds me of me when, when I was a rookie cop. But what will happen is you could fall in with the wrong partner, you know, you go to a precinct and you're a rookie cop and there's this old timer and he's really nice to you. Oh yeah. Yeah. You want to partner up? You want to get in a car? A rookie cop's going to jump at that. A, they want the acceptance. B, they don't want to get stuck on a foot post or guarding a DOA in an apartment somewhere. So it sounds great to work with this guy, but you don't have that wisdom and knowledge. Like, well, he's 40 something years old. Why does he want to work with a 21 year old kid? Because he's a scumbag and nobody else wants to work with this guy and he's always getting in trouble. You know, it's just get get good evaluations, stay out of trouble, and don't listen to the biggest mouth in the locker room. More cops have gotten in trouble. It, it becomes a pack mentality and they listen to the guy with the biggest mouth in the locker room and they don't want to be able to. It's like the schoolyard. You don't want to break away from the pack. You don't want to be the outsider. But eventually those guys wind up getting themselves in trouble and they'll take a couple of guys down or girls with them. Oh, wow. Um, I was also curious about um, being a detective. Um, can you tell those for, for, the, for those of us who really don't know what the difference is between being a beat cop and a detective? What is the differences between those two things? Sure. So like in New York, right? New York is civil service 
the the ladder is civil service. So it's cop. You take a civil service exam. Sergeant, you take an exam. Lieutenant, captain, and then any above captain. That's when the politicking begins to become deputy inspector, inspector chief. Detective is lateral from a cop. You're not over a cop. You can't give a cop orders, but you're a lateral. Okay. So you're making uh, probably about three or five thousand dollars more than a cop, and and your your hours a little different. In the NYPD, to become a detective, you have to work. Now it might have changed, but while I was there, you had to work eighteen months in an investigative unit to get your detective shield. So narcotics, vice, auto crime division, internal affairs, inspection. There's so many units in the NY investigative units in the NYPD. If you go into one of these places, you get good evaluations. After eighteen months, you're rewarded and you're promoted to detective. The difference is, is this: when you're a cop in a precinct. You're responding to the radio. Your whole existence is going to the radio, be it a cat in a tree, a bank robbery, a domestic, a DOA, a plane crash, whatever it is, whatever that radio is calling, you're going and your job is to answer those calls. When you're a detective, depending on the unit, your responsibilities are different. So if you've watched Barney Miller on television, that's the closest thing to what a real detective squad is like. It's on the second floor of most NYPD precincts. There's usually 20 people in there. They work in shifts of six or seven. And patrol takes in complaint reports of 61s. And if there's some bad checks, homicides, you name it, it gets kicked up to the squad and they investigate it. They make arrests or they close it out. If you're working like I did in organized crime, our mission was the mafia or organized rings that were stealing cars. So if you ever saw the movie Heat with De Niro and Pacino, that's kind of what we did, but not as well dressed. We were in jeans and sneakers and we didn't have really nice cars either. But we went after we we would pick off the garden variety pain in the ass car thief. But we went after the chop shops, the guys running the operations. Gotcha. So you were in that detail for, you said, 10 years. Uh, uh, in your bio, you said you got some you got some funny stories. Give us one of your best st- stories where you and your partner and your team just started cracking up after it was all said and done. What the auto crime division? To- yeah. You want funny or you want cases or I want funny. I want either something really stupid that you saw or something that made you guys laugh. That was just ridiculously funny. Well, I'll, I'll tell doing. you funny. I get a phone call from the director of security for Mercedes Benz. He says this car. This uh, this Mercedes comes in and the VIN number just doesn't compute. And they call Deutschland and Germany reports back that the car was reported stolen in France. And it's, it's there now. So I get down there. The guy's already gone. I says, well, give me the guy's license plate. I run the license plate through 50 states. Doesn't come back to anything. So it's like a ghost. So he goes, well, he's coming in next week for his navigation system or something. I says, great. Next week, my partner and I, bright and early, get up. We're sitting alongside the west side of Manhattan waiting for this car to come in. We see the car getting online to get in. It's got diplomatic plates. I said, oh, shit, that kind of changes things. So we're not supposed to really deal with diplomats. If You can't detain a diplomat, right? So I watch the car go in. We park our car on the side. We go into the Mercedes dealership, and I'm watching this guy. Guy about 45 years old. He looked like uh, the bass player for uh, U2, uh, Adam Clayton. And he's like in his 40s, right? And he's with this really attractive 20-something-year-old Tootsie. She's pregnant. Like, she looks like she's going to give birth in 10 seconds, and she's wearing a chinchilla coat. 
right? So I'm just, and they're looking at cars, having the time of their life and they leave, right? I run into the garage. I copy down the VIN number. I get the license plate, which is a diplomatic plate. I says, all right, give them the car back. Don't say a word. I'm going to look into this. So I had to find out, is this car really stolen? Who owns the car? So this is after 9-11. We had detectives and supervisors all over the world in different cities doing counterterrorism work. So we had an NYPD sergeant in France. I'm calling this guy up five hour time difference. I says, listen, I need you to tell me what's the story with this call. Was it really reported stolen? Who owns the car? Right. He's working on that. I find out that the car was shipped into the United States from Cotivar, which is this little country in Africa that makes Nigeria look like Disney World. And I'm saying to myself, what, what is this? Like, it's just it, there's just so many moving parts. We find out it's not the diplomat. He's not a diplomat, but he's married to a diplomat diplomat from the island of Vanatu in the South Pacific. So he enjoys the same protections as a diplomat. So I can't arrest him either. So the State Department tells me, look, you can't arrest him. I says, well, then I'm just going to get a key cut for Mercedes and steal their car back. And he goes, oh, no, 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 you can't do that either, please. He goes, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring the diplomat in. I'm going to explain to her what's going on. He goes, more than likely, he goes, there's only like three or four diplomats from Vanatu. More than likely, she's going to hand the car over. She doesn't want a beef. She doesn't want this getting back to her country that her, her husband imported a stolen car. I said, all right. I show up one day at, at uh, the State Department. This woman's there and she's apologizing. I'm so sorry for the inconvenience, but that's not the woman I saw with the guy. This woman's like 45 years old, right? So I says, where's your husband now? Oh, he's out of, he's out of town on business. I don't know how this could have happened. I says, all right, no harm, no foul. Give me the keys. I take the car back. I give it back to the company. The company gets shipped back to France, right? So it's one of these things where I took care of it, but no one gets arrested, right? So I'm a little pissed off about it. About three weeks later, one of my guys in my office goes, there's some English guy on the phone and he's cursing up a storm. He wants to talk to you. I says, put him on. So I go, hello, it's this English guy. It's, it's the diplomat's husband. And he's like, he's pounding his chest because the wife is there. And he's like, you had no right to take that car. That car was ours. I have paperwork for that car, blah, blah. And he's just going on and on and on and on. Right. And I go, you know, it's funny. I met your wife and that's not the woman I saw you in the Mercedes dealership with. Did your girlfriend have the baby yet? You could heard a fucking pin drop. He's like, Thank you, detective. And he got off the phone. So <laughs> never heard another thing about that. Yeah, I bet. That's well, Vic, a story. Yeah. I mean, there's so much more to it, but this is why the man writes books, right? <laughs> By the way, is that great. story in your Yeah, in that your book, book that story is in Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto division. <laughs> so uh Victor, we really appreciate you joining us. Um Tell, I, I'm sure Amy's going to put it on uh, on the podcast when it gets published, but tell folks where they can find your books. And I'm, you know, I, I know we're not supposed to say this, but you might, what's your favorite one that you wrote? What's the one that you love, you love the most? Oh, they're all my children, but yeah, um, I know I, I, my mother used to watch all my children. So um, NYPD law and disorder. It's got a lot of embarrassing moments and things that happened to me, including me in a public restroom with my gun belt on a hook and a bunch of teenagers ran into the next stall. One of the kids jumped up on the toilet and grabbed my gun belt. I jump up, 
trying to pull my pants up with my left hand and I pull the kid over the stall. He grabs onto my gun belt. So now I got to let go of my pants and it's a hockey fight over the stall. His friends run into the next stall and now we're, we're having a tug of war with this kid over the wall. He lets go of my gun belt. It hits the floor like a fumble. They pull him over the wall and break the wall. I pull up my pants. I snap on my gun belt. I run into the food court of this mall. And there's like this 300 pound guy buffing the floor with a Sony Walkman. And I'm like, sir, sir, sir. Did you see a bunch of teenagers run out of here? He takes the Walkman out. He burps and he goes, no. So I, that's a story I kept to myself for 30 years until I got into writing books about Lawrenfoot. There's so much more to it because I, I locked up a couple of guys with a couple of kilos as on top of the world. And I wound up almost losing my gun belt in, in, in a public restroom. That is fantastic. So Vin, tell them where they can find these books so they can get more of these interesting stories. Sure. So just go to the go to Amazon book section, type in my name, Vic, V-I-C, Ferrari, like the car. All my paperbacks will come up. They're $10 paperback, $2.99 ebook download. And if you want to get a hold of me on Twitter or Instagram, it's at VicFerrari50. Vic, that was very exciting, very entertaining. Thank you for sharing your, your experiences with the folks out there. Uh, we're going to wrap it up right here. Another great episode of uh, Career Education and Beyond. Uh, on behalf of uh, Capri and our guest, Vic, this is Ed. We'll see you in the next episode. Oh, before I forget, I always mess this up, Vic. If you like it, give us a thumbs up. If you really like it, share it with other people. And if you love it, subscribe so you can get uh, notified when we have our next episodes up for those to enjoy. I will do all three. Oh, thanks. Appreciate it. That wasn't specifically for you, Vic, but we'll take it. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Vic. Thanks. Appreciate you having you on. Thank you.